If you enjoy Champions for Children, be sure to check out the new podcast from Nemours Children's Health, Well Beyond Medicine. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts or at NemoursWellBeyond.org to continue hearing the stories of anything and everything related to the 80% of child health impacts that occur outside the doctor's office. And now, the episode of Champions for Children you requested. Enjoy! Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Nemours Champions for Children podcast. I'm Carol Vassar. Not long ago, we received an email from Nemours associate Lindsay Killian. She's new to Nemours, having joined the enterprise in October 2021 as a new awards specialist in the Sponsored Projects Office. That's where she handles NIH and other grants bestowed upon Nemours. In that email, Lindsay wrote, and I quote, From photos, our young family looks like a typical family with two small children. But once you share a meal with us, you will see that our family is not your typical family with two small children. And it's how they faced the trials and triumphs of a diagnosis of a genetic condition affecting two of its four family members that is the centerpiece of this podcast and next week's episode. A condition that affects every aspect of their lives, from the food they eat to the places they choose to live, work, and play. It's also the story of advanced modern medicine and the tools used to detect and treat rare genetic conditions in the hours immediately following a child's birth, a vital public health screening available in some form or another to all babies born in the United States. Lindsay Killian and her husband, Dr. Thomas Killian, sat down with me to tell their story. Tom is the executive director for the Kent Center in Chestertown, Maryland, which provides services for individuals with developmental and intellectual disabilities. So what does a typical dinner in the Killian household look like? Here's Lindsay. Well, first, it won't appear that much different because we do have a four and a half year old and we have a nine month old who's almost 10 months. So we have a lot of those toddler isms that happen at mealtimes where at first glance, TJ's plate, who's our four and a half year old, none of his food is touching. All of his foods are in separate containers. And that's not because TJ can't have his food touched. It's more, that's an easier way for mom and dad for after the meal for cleanup because we have to measure everything so not only is the ketchup separate from the french fries and the french fries are on the plate and at first glance you might be like why are those parents feeding their kid just french fries for dinner well that's what his allowance has he can have up to like six an equivalent about six grams of protein a day So if he's had a low protein diet for most of the day, or like most toddlers, he chose, I don't want to eat my lunch. Okay. So it's dinner time. You need to have protein because your brain needs to work. So we're going to give him a plate of French fries. So it may not look that balanced, but it's what his little body needs. So he's going to have a plate of French fries. And unlike other four and a half year olds, he's going to be asking for a bowl of beets. He loves beets. And if anyone asks, all red beets come from Pappy's garden. Do not do not <laughs> negotiate with him. All red beets come from Pappy's garden. So you'll have a side order of red beets and maybe like watermelon or 
some kind of melon. That's his kind of his go-to. So that's what his meal looks like. But then Tom and I are going to have more of a well-balanced normal plate, for example, where my plate will have my food with a small section, of course, for the 10-month-old, almost the 9 10-month-old, because they got to he wants what mommy's eating, but ours is going to have your normal like protein and a vegetable side. But TJ, he's going to have, like I said, just that plate of French fries, typically, or a ketchup and pickle sandwich. Or if he asks for a hot dog sandwich, we know that a hot dog sandwich is really just a half of a bun with a long pickle. Do not cut the pickle with ketchup on it. And for TJ, his chicken nuggets are really tater tots. Just don't tell him. <laughs> and, and there's a very specific reason for this. This is not yes. anything that, really anything that you chose, but it has to do with a metabolic condition that not only does TJ have, but Tom also has, and it's called PKU. Tom, can you tell us about that? Yeah, PKU, or known as phenylketonuria, is a genetic liver disorder that your liver doesn't produce the enzymes to break down the amino acid phenylalanine that's in the food. Most all foods have phenylalanine. Some are higher than others, like certain meats are higher, certain starches are higher than vegetables. But this enzyme doesn't break it down. And what happens is the phenylalanine travels to the blood-brain barrier and kind of gets stuck. It's like a fishing net that just, it won't go through. The byproduct from that breakdown is tyrosine, which is helping out with like your serotonin and your dopamine in your brain to kind of make you feel calmer. So a lot of times there's some different behavioral health challenges that can come from this uh, disorder and focus issues like if you were diagnosed with ADHD, um, mood dysregulations, it could be depression, it could be anxiety. Other things too, it can lead to different learning disabilities. It can also lead to some different developmental disabilities. A lot of times it'll start to affect the IQ level as well. And when were you first diagnosed with PKU? I was actually diagnosed in the first class in 1978 in Pennsylvania. And that's through newborn screening in the state of Pennsylvania? Yes. Yeah, that was the first year that they started a newborn screening. And how did that affect your growing up years? How did you manage PKU since that time? And how has management really changed over that time? Well, in the, first off, in that, in that day and age, my parents had no idea what the heck it was. You know, here it is. They're, not only do they have a a kid which doesn't come with an instruction manual, but now we're going to throw all this stuff into it. Like, okay, he can eat this, 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 and this. Well, what about everything else? You know, back then when I was growing up, we had one formula you can drink. Oh, it tasted wonderful. I had Mr. Yuck stickers all over it. <laughs> it did not taste that good. You know, they had foods, but the food that you could order had to come from like Seattle, Washington. Um, I remember one time we bought bread and it was in a can. Yeah, yeah, and it can. And they shipped this to me from Seattle, Washington. And when it came out, you know how the, the jelly cranberry sauce looks? Well, the bread looked exactly the same and it was like styrofoam. So growing up, it was really hard because my parents, you know, were poor and it was really hard to buy a lot of the foods, a lot of fruits and vegetables. So I turned to my staple was pasta is what I, I kind of turned to as I was growing up. And then I kind of got off diet for a while because it was really hard to maintain when I was in school and maintain my calorie intake and stuff. So I, I went off diet and, and, you know, ate the forbidden foods that I shouldn't have. But then later on, as I got into my early twenties and, and I met my wife, Lindsay, 
I started to get back on diet and I noticed there's a lot of newer products out there now. The gluten-free movement has really opened up a lot more opportunities and palate for my son to be able and myself even to, to try new things that have lower protein. Also too, they have hundreds of different types of drinks you can have that taste way better than the stuff that I was taking. I, I did find one that I like. All the rest still tastes kind of weird to me, but that's from all the years of having only one or two options. When you went off diet, how, how did that affect you in your body, in your, your life? It really affected me a, a lot. It was in college. I got sort of on a, what I considered my modified diet, where a couple of days a week I would follow diet, a couple of days a week I wouldn't. But it really led to a lot of, I noticed a lot of like focus issues. You'll hear a lot of people with BKU say they felt like they're in a fog. And what they mean by that is, is everything in the world is moving faster than what your brain can actually comprehend. So you feel like you're in a fog. I had a lot of mood disorders going on. Like I was very anxious. Sometimes I would get very um, angry for no reason at all, very frustrated. So it really played a lot of, you know, issues on my mental health, but it also did take a toll on other parts of my brain, like my brain and my liver. So physically it took, you know, it took stress on my body as well. And it sounds like you two met in college, if I'm not mistaken. Lindsay, had you ever heard of PKU previous to meeting Tom? Initially, I should have. That's my answer. I should have because here's an interesting twist in our PKU journey. I come from a very large extended family on my mom's side. There's a lot of first cousins that I never met. A lot of first cousins who are older than my mom. That she's the baby. Turns out, I actually have a cousin who has PKU that we just learned about this past summer, and he is in his 30s. So at family reunions, it was never talked about. It was never discussed. It was just, he is the way he is, and that's it. He would sometimes pick up his formula, but he never drank it. He also met a partner who got him to go back on diet. So he's starting to get back on formula and get back on diet. So I really, I should have known about PKU, but I never did until Tom sent me. I remember when Tom told me, he told me over AOL, Instant Messenger, not to date ourselves, but he told me that. And my first response was, is it fatal? And he's like, well, technically no. And I'm like, oh, well, okay. Because also in my family, on my dad's side, there's other chronic conditions that require daily monitoring and special diets. So to me, I was like, okay, you got a special diet. That's cool. Like I come from a family who loves to experiment in the kitchen and maybe Tom doesn't always like my creativity in the kitchen, but it has turned out he will, I think he will admit some of my creativity has really turned out to be pretty good and acceptable in our household still. And assuming, you know, Lindsay, you heard this news and you accepted this news, but there are many who may be listening who would take that on with very much intrepidation of what the life was to come. And you two became more serious and this wonderful man became your husband. What did you know about the day-to-day -day monitoring and treatment of this disease and how did you jump in? It sounds like you were a big influence in getting him back on diet. So Tom and I's love story was it takes twists and turns. I kept him kind of at a distance for a while. But then once we actually started dating our relationship, it was 
a few months in is when Tom entered a clinical trial to experiment with some PK treatments. So that's whenever my interest kind of was like, oh, so this is really what it's like, because that was kind of also another push for him to kind of get back onto doing more days on diet, being more faithful with, at that point, he didn't have any formula, but he was more faithful at tracking his diet. Because that's one thing that's really vital is measuring things, counting things out weighing out things, how much protein is in this plate of potatoes versus this bowl of broccoli and cauliflower. That's when I also kind of went back into my, even with my mom, like trying to ask, like, how can we make taco salad, which is really popular in our family? I was like, how can I revamp that? And, you know, because you can't have the beans. Beans are high in protein. Can't have the meat. That's high in protein. And Tom loves tacos. So how can we make this work? Tom and Lindsay, married in 2014, determined to make it work. Together, they embarked on their journey to become parents, each aware that their child or children were genetically predisposed to PKU. Tom explains. With PKU, it's a recessive dominant gene. Most individuals with PKU always have like a lighter skin. Um, they will have blue eyes. I've noticed a lot when when you're born, usually very light hair. And this is due to the lack of tyrosine in the body. I've talked to a geneticist my whole life going to clinic. And when I say clinic, that is going to St. Christopher's Hospital in Philadelphia. Been going there for 43 years. So they know me inside and out. And I've outlasted many doctors and nurses. But yeah, when I was first with Lindsay, we were talking about this. And, and there's a 25% chance that we would have a kid that could have PKU. You know, the other percentages were either a carrier or not at all. So that's when I talked with Lindsay and said, look, I don't need a test. You know, it's going to come from me. So then we, you know, we were talking about Lindsay getting tested to see if she had any predisposition for any genetic disorders. It, it was a good conversation. You know, we were kind of both scared a little bit because I know what it's like. And I was kind of scared for her too, because she would have to go through some of the same things my parents did with not having any idea. So it was it was a journey. I, I can say that. Lindsay, same question. How did you look at uh, future children with Tom, given the diagnosis of PKU? Yeah, like Tom said, I mean, we knew going in, you know, at the altar, we knew when, when we had decided to have children, there was going to be at least a 25% chance. And then whenever we like, okay, that's if we're going to be serious about having children, I said, I want to do the extended panel. So I did the blood draw for the full gamut of genetic disorders. And lo and behold, the one and only genetic disorder that I'm a carrier for was PKU. So we're like, what are the odds of that? <laughs> so that's the point when we were now, all right, so it's basically going to be 50-50. And I said, well, 50-50, it's PKU. It's not PKU. 50-50, it's a boy, it's a girl. I mean, it's the odds of, you know, having a child. So Going in, I knew in the back of my mind, okay, it's it's possible, but like Tom said, something whenever we announced that we were pregnant to the clinic and expecting, the, one of the researchers there asked me, like, well, well, how do you feel if it if fifty if the fifty percent chance is that there's going to be PKU? I said, well, it's going to be okay. I said because no matter what, they're going to be dominant recessive, obviously, so they're going to be one cute little kid who's going to have PKU. That's what I kept telling folks. It's going to be one cute little kid who has PKU. And 
as it happens, He's TJ was born four and a half, cute little TJ was born four and a half years later. Yeah. And you quickly learned that he too had PKU, I'm assuming through the similar newborn screening that Tom had undergone many years earlier. Lindsay first, followed by, by Tom. How did you feel when you got that phone call with TJ having the diagnosis of PKU? So we got the phone call a day for life. And I remember that's one of those phone calls that I will probably remember forever because I know exactly where I was sitting. I remember exactly what I was looking at. I remember looking at Tom. Someone had just dropped off dinner for us because here we were two new parents with a newborn. So they kind of, they dropped off a shepherd's pie and Tom was trying to figure out how to heat it up. And I looked at him and I hung up the phone. I said, we have to go to Hershey at the time. And he's like, why? I say, he's PKU. And that's when, and I was like, and the clinic closed in 15 minutes. We got to go now. <laughs> like That's where my mind went. It was like, okay, it's 445. Clinic closes at five o'clock. We need to get there now. And at that point, Hershey was, well, at that time of day, it was at least 30 to 45 minute drive just because, you know, traffic. So I'm already panicked thinking, okay, how are we going to get there in time for an appointment? Because one of the most important steps in those early days is getting them on the right formula. So that's where my anxiety was more focused at the time of the immediate need of beating the clock of getting to clinic. And then it was then afterwards, it was really like the first six months that I kind of struggled and I didn't realize at the time that I was grieving the idea of having a child with PKU because in my family, we love to gather together. We love to have meals together. And food is an important, like it's, it's a focus point in our family and in social gatherings. So in those first four days and even that time leading up to the day TJ was born, like you have in your mind, especially me as a planner, I was envisioning like what his first birthday is going to be like, birthday themes, Christmas and all those little fun things. And now I was kind of like, okay, he won't be able to go to the boardwalk and have ice cream with us as a family. So I was kind of upset, but I didn't know I was upset until we actually switched clinics. And so that way Tom and TJ were at the same clinic together just because that helped with continuity care. And also with, with annual appointments, we can do one appointment together for both of them. It makes our schedules a little easier. And when we made that first visit with TJ to transfer TJ to to Tom's clinic uh, so they could be together, everyone up to that point was telling me, you have such a great resource. You have such a great resource. It's going to be okay. But that saying you have such a great resource made me so angry because in my mind, I kept saying, yeah, but everybody is different. Everybody can respond differently. You can have two diabetics who respond to one medication and the other one doesn't. Why? Because they have two different bodies, two different chemistries. And TJ is part me. He, he has part of my genetics. He is part Tom, but he's also part me. So what if my part doesn't respond to the same kind of treatment Tom has had? So when we were at clinic, I remember saying to the nurse practitioner, please don't tell me I have a great resource. And she looked at me square in the face and she goes, I'm not going to tell you that. You have been grieving for the last six months. You have every right to be upset and to grieve because what you had envisioned is going to be different. And that's okay. And at that point, so the light went off, I'm like, 
I had been angry because I had been grieving and I just didn't know it because in my mind, it was just getting over that hurdle of, okay, yes, I know I have Tom. I know Tom has been through this, but things have, like Tom has previously said, things are so different compared to 1978 and it, how it was in 2017. And even now from 2017 to 2021, 22, things are so different still with TJ and the options we have. Talk about the options and how things are different just from 2017 to 2021, 2022. So when we started out, his first six months of life, it's, it was PKU formula. He was on a combination of PKU formula and breast milk because breast milk is really low in fee. Fee, in this case spelled P-H-E, is short for phenylalanine, which is a key measure in monitoring PKU. He can have up to like 12 ounces of breast milk a day. So I exclusively pumped for a year and a week. <laughs> so Because it needed to be measured. It need, Everything needs to be measured. He would get his PKU formula and then he would get breast milk. And we had two different bottles. We had, we had a one bottle for the PKU formula and one is completely different brand even of a bottle for the breast milk. So that way we, we could kind of help us in our sleep deprivation days to know like this bottle was used, next bottle is going to be this. But then when TJ goes through, went, was going through growth spurts, it was, his clinic was a very vital part to his early years and knowing what kind of diet those in those first six months, because sometimes when you went through those growth spurts, he needed the extra fee. So then we would have to supplement with over-the-counter regular baby formula because it was high in protein. He needed the protein because his body was just breaking down itself. But then you introduce baby foods and solids. Well, he can't have baby oatmeal because oatmeal is high in protein. So then he was limited to a certain type of rice cereal. And then it was, okay, he can have fruits and vegetables, but he can't have the protein. He can't have the pureed meats. So you had to look and make sure that when you were picking up baby food, which one were you picking up? Because all the colors kind of look the same. But then you had to make sure when they, when they were combining the two fruits and vegetables, was it a fruit that was low in protein with a high protein vegetable? And how, how did that balance out? Now, when we got to his first birthday and we were doing more table foods, we thought we were going to be limited to like the medical food companies, the med especially PKU medical food companies who do the special pastas and such. And initially, TJ loved the one particular pasta. We ended up buying cases of it, <laughs> which unfortunately we still have parts of because like a child, they will love it for a week or so. You buy it in bulk and no thanks, mom. So... That's where we thought we were going to be doing. Like we thought we were going to be like juggling these medical food companies. But now, today, I can go through a list and I can tell you which grocery stores are going to have the gluten-free breads that TJ will eat, the gluten-free breads that he can have, and not all gluten-free breads are created equal. So now we have a certain list of items we get at Walmart, certain items I know I can get at Acme certain foods that he can get at Food Lion, Giant or Martin's will carry some. And then Trader Joe's has our, we have a short list for Trader Joe's that, of items that are PKU friendly and also foods that are not just PKU friendly, but also TJ approved. 
<laughs> which is important. It is important. Yeah. And even when it comes to certain candies, we can go down a candy aisle and I can say, nope, you can't have that gummy snack, but you can have that gummy snack because that gummy snack doesn't have gelatin in it. Because gelatin, you got to read those list of ingredients. Gelatin, of course, protein base, can't have those. I'm seeing this as, okay, you've had a baby, which is a major life change. You, as you said earlier, sleep deprived. And now you have a, a baby and a toddler who has special dietary needs. Talk about the extra strain this put on the two of you and on your, your family as a whole. That was an interesting conversation I think Tom and I had when we were expecting our second child was, what if this one's going to be PKU? Because again, it's 50-50. And I somehow in the back of my mind was saying, well, it'll be easier if he's PKU. It'll be easier if he's PKU. But I think Tom will agree for our dynamics and our family and TJ's big old past personality. We think it at this point it's easier that Nicholas, our second son, was not PKU because in our family, TJ has his special snacks. But like a toddler, he will love it. Like I said, he'll love it for a week or so, but then he doesn't love it. And so we're kind of like, all right, well, we're not going to feed the dog this. Let's see if baby brother will eat it because Nicholas is now, he can have some table food. So we kind of shift like, all right, here, you can try this because the thing with PKU foods, now we haven't done it with the medical foods yet because we're not that brave yet. But the gluten-free stuff, we definitely are sharing those with little brother because it's okay for him to try it and we'll see what happens. What happens next? The rest of the Killian family story next week on the Champions for Children podcast. Thanks so much to Lindsay and Tom Killian for sharing their family's PKU story. There is so much more of it to share, including the extra work needed to travel as a family, the battle with insurance coverage, and the reason why Nemours, even without a PKU clinic, is so near and dear to Lindsay's heart that she was determined to work here. Stories like these from Nemours Associates like you and like Lindsay are the engine that drive the Champions for Children podcast. If you have a story you'd like to share, just do what Lindsay did. Email us a brief synopsis for consideration. That email address is podcast at Nemours.org. That's podcast at Nemours.org. Thanks, as always, to our production team, Peter Adebi and Deborah Griffin. Our music is courtesy of Blue Dot Sessions in Turner's Falls, Massachusetts. Listen to any of our past episodes, or this one again, via your favorite podcast app, or tell your smart speaker to play the Champions for Children podcast. On behalf of Lindsay and Tom Killian, I'm Carol Vassar. Thanks for joining us for this edition of the Champions for Children podcast. All three of us will be back next week. Until then, please stay safe, stay well, and thank you for all you do for the children and families we serve.